Do you ever come to church and ask yourself, what's the point? Do you ever come to church or wake up on a Sunday morning and think, where are we going with, with all this? As you ponder those questions, allow me to introduce myself. My name's Brogan. Um, I am a husband to Beth. I'm a dad to Eliza, um, who's just in the corner there playing with her ribbons. Um, and I'm the curate here at St. Thomas's. I am invited to ask these provocative questions. What's the point? We are in the end, as Ben said, of our Vision 2023 series. And that's the question that we've been asking. And we've started to articulate an answer, which is this. We come here that we might encounter the presence of God through his word and through his spirit, that we may be transformed in community to, as with one another in order that we might go out to see transformation in our city and in our region by God's grace and for his glory glory. And what I hope you've seen in this series is that you have a part to play in that. It's important that you are here because you have a part to play. Transforming your workplace, your family, your home, your school, your campus, your college for the glory of God by the grace of God. I wonder if you were tying all of this up together into one image at the end of a sermon series, what might you choose? Or a, a better question, what might God have ordained in the life of his church to be an enduring image to remind us who we are, what we're doing here and where we're going with all this? Turn with me to Luke 22, if you will. Luke 22, and we're going to start reading at verse 7. So get a Bible out if you've got one with you. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the one symbol that the Lord has ordained in the church that we remember where we come to, where we are transformed and what we are sent out to proclaim? Today, I want to offer you a table. A table. In fact, three different tables. Today, we're going to talk about the Passover table, the Lord's table, and then finally, your table or wherever you eat. I realise that might not be a table, you might be a student, you might be on your knee, I don't know. Um, But your table. So let's start looking at the Passover table then, verses 7 through to 13. Now the first question we've got to ask whenever we read the Bible is what did the authors mean when they wrote that word? What did Jesus mean when he said the word Passover? Well, for uh, the Jewish context that Luke was writing into, the Passover was a memorial meal of freedom. Just in the same way that our nation looks back to some of our defining moments, uh, whatever it may be, maybe it's the Magna Carta or the Spanish Armada or victory in the Second World War, I I don't know, whatever, whatever you would say it is. So too did the Jewish nation look back to a defining moment. And for them, it was a moment when they were brutally enslaved in the Egyptian empire. They were living at the mercy of a merciless regime. Just as an image of, um, of this, we see uh, that uh, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, commands that all of the baby boys born to the Lord's people, the Israelites, are slaughtered at birth. And they're living as slaves. And the Lord, who hates injustice and hates oppression, raises up Moses to proclaim freedom for his people. And Moses is sent to the king's palace to proclaim that he must repent and let these people go free. You can read this story in the first 12 chapters of Exodus. But the Pharaoh does not repent. He does not let the people go free. And so the Lord, in one night, visits his judgment and his wrath on the nation of Egypt. And just as he proclaimed to Pharaoh, Pharaoh was warned about this in advance. The Lord passed through the nation. And that night, every firstborn male died. Notice the mirror imagery here. The Egyptians who slaughtered the baby boys faced the punishment, the just punishment, that their young men were killed. However, the Lord made a way out for his people. He said, you are to take a lamb. You are to slaughter this lamb. You are to paint its blood above your doorposts and you are to eat this memorial meal of your freedom. And when I see that blood, though I pass over the whole land, though you too are guilty, I will spare you because I see the blood of the lamb. And so that is the night that the Lord's wrath passes over his people. 
And they are commanded to keep this as a festival. Fast forwards 1400 years to Jesus' day and they are still celebrating every year the Passover. Which makes sense of what we read in verse 7. The day came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus, who keeps the law perfectly, sends his disciples to go and make preparations. Verse 8. And this is, he's already made some preparations um, because he's clearly arranged with someone that this is going to happen at their house. Uh, Verse 11. He's already made some preparations. But here's the thing. They might have been celebrating it for 1,400 years. It might all be prepared, but this meal is not complete. It is not complete. Verse 15, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We'll come back to that in a moment. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You see, the Passover might have been the greatest display of the Lord's power so far, But in comparison to what was to come, it was merely an unfulfilled promise. It may have been the greatest display so far, but in comparison with what Jesus would do, it would be an unfulfilled promise. So that's the Passover table in this passage. Let's move on to the next table that we're looking at today, the Lord's table, verses 14 through to 21. Now, this would have been a strange Passover for a number of reasons, Um, but probably the strangest would have been what I read out in verse 15. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's a bizarre statement. It it feels almost contradictory. Uh, Yesterday, we had my daughter Eliza's birthday party. Um, It was great. There's loads of cake left over. Um, Help yourself to some at the end. We're in a bit of a season of birthdays at our house. Um, My birthday is at the end of April. Now, suppose I had you over to my house for some cake on my birthday, and I cut you a slice, and I handed it to you, and I said, Nick, I've eagerly desired to eat this cake with you since I died three and a half years ago. You would look me in the eye and say, Brogan, are you feeling all right? (laughs) Because dying three and a half years ago is the opposite to a new year of life ahead of you. They are uh, directly contradictory. And it's the same is true of of this sentence that Jesus says, I've greatly desired to eat this meal of freedom and celebration and wholeness with you before I suffer. What in the earth was he on about? Why was Jesus talking about the suffering that he was going to endure when it is a meal that was all about God redeeming his people from suffering? We understand this when we read verses 15, 19 and 20 all together. Look at them with me. Verse 15. This is a meal that is waiting to find fulfillment. And then he takes bread and says, this is my body, and he breaks it. And he takes wine and he pours it out and he says, this is my blood in the new covenant. What's he saying? The old meal, the old Passover, 
The Passover table was a stay of execution. The Lord's table is perfect forgiveness and absolution. The Passover was about temporal deliverance. The Lord's table is about eternal freedom. In the Passover, God's wrath was not satisfied. It was merely an act of mercy that his wrath passed over them. There was no forgiveness because no animal can take the moral weight of all of human sin and failure. No lamb can bear the weight of human rebellion against God until Jesus arrives on the scene. And what does John the Baptist cry out about him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was pointing out to his disciples, that's the true Passover, walking around there. That's the true Passover. His blood will shield you from wrath eternally. His blood is perfect forgiveness. His blood mediates for sin. There is a monumental difference between the lamb that causes sin to be passed over and the lamb who takes away sin altogether. In the old covenant, the blood of the lamb saved for a night, but in the new covenant, the blood of the lamb saves for eternity. You see, the Lord's table is intimately connected with the Lord's cross. This table is not just the end of Jesus' preaching ministry. It's the start of the cross. The cross starts here. What does Jesus say? Before I suffer. What is Jesus' suffering? It's his death. It's his crucifixion. It's his blood being spilt. It's his body being broken in order that we may be healed and restored. We sing those words in that song. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is the meal that we receive today when we receive the Eucharist, when we receive communion, when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, whatever you want to call it, because we pray, more rightly, Ben or Adam or Joanna prays, send your Holy Spirit that broken bread and wine outpoured might be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, might be for us, might be for you, It's not an abstract idea of freedom. It's not an impersonal idea of forgiveness. It is personal. It is particular and it is specific to you. We're asking the Holy Spirit to transform these elements of bread and wine that they may transform us. This is a meal that does something. 
Now, I think that we often get this wrong. We basically sometimes think of communion as an extended prayer activity. That's not what it is. There's a massive difference between a brake light and a brake pedal on a car, right? A brake light shows that something is happening. The car is slowing down, the car is coming to a stop. But if you know what you're doing, I don't, but I'm sure there are people who do, and you lift up the bonnet of a car, you can turn the brake light on very, very easily. You just connect to, you know, the wires and it will come on. It doesn't do anything to the car, but the brake light comes on. And then you've got the brake pedal. When you press that brake pedal, something happens. And as you'll know, if you ever tried to press it with your left foot to see what happens, you like, you fly forwards and you smash your head against the windscreen. Uh, Don't do that, by the way. Um, It does something. It is powerful. It has an effect. Communion is not so much a brake light, it's a brake pedal. It actually does something when we receive it. We receive mercy. We receive the bread that sustains us on the new exodus. And we start to become what we are eating, the body of Christ. In communion, we receive the benefits of the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us which is an eternal and perfect communion with God, which we can enter not because of anything that we've done, but because we have come under the blood of the Lamb. That's why before we come to the table, we confess our sins. That's why we make sure we're right with God, because at this table, it's not that we're receiving forgiveness at this table. That's already happened on the cross. We're receiving the benefits of forgiveness on this table. We're receiving an eternal communion with God. Something that you might um, or may or may not have noticed uh, that sometimes when people receive communion, I'm one of them, I'll mark myself with a sign of the cross. It's not a superstition thing. It's not a weird Roman Catholic thing, although they might do it. I don't know. Um, But it, it is specifically to remind myself that everything that I'm receiving in this meal, I receive through the cross. My eternal relationship with God is one for me through the cross. It's one for me because of Jesus dying on the cross, not because of what I've done, but because of the forgiveness that I've received. And the reason I proclaim this this morning is for two reasons. The first is to assure you, if you are following Jesus here today, that does not necessarily mean that, that you wake up every morning and just like, I am so forgiven. I hope it is, but, uh, but you might not. I want to proclaim to you afresh today, if you are following Jesus, then this is true for you. That you wake up every morning knowing the love of God the Father over you. That you wake up every morning with the blood of Jesus pointed over you. And therefore you can wake up every morning knowing the presence of God, the Spirit within you. I want to assure you of that today. Because Jesus said, I rejoice, I've longed to eat this meal before I suffer And his suffering was for you. And I also proclaim it this morning to call on you. If you don't know this, if you are new to faith, if you're trying to work out why in the earth Jesus would have to die on the cross, 
is because of this. God doesn't just want a few brief moments with you where his mercy will visit you for a moment, a bit like in the Passover. The Lord longs for you to know the eternal freedom that Jesus has won for you. And that's what we celebrate when we are worshipping and we're singing. That's what we're celebrating when we can't leave the presence of God. We're celebrating that he's drawn us into a perfect, eternal relationship. In the old covenant meal, God passed over our sins. But in the new covenant meal, God forgave us our sins. At the Passover table, we were granted mercy for a night. At the Lord's table, we're granted mercy forever. And that should change the way that we live Verses 21 to 22, we're now going to look at your table. Now, I'm going to introduce this idea, and then we'll circle back to those verses in, uh, in a moment. Uh, if communion is this significant, then that should shape the way that we do community life. That should mean that food has a special place in our community, as it does with lots of cultures around the world. Um, a few years ago, Beth and I were invited to a wedding in Hong Kong. It was, oh my goodness, it was amazing. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, really, really warm. Really, really, really warm. Um, Anyway, uh, I was invited to go on the stag do. I, this is all best friends from uni. I'd only met this guy once, but he generously invited me on the stag do. He didn't want me feeling left out. And so it was me and him and like 20 other people who I had no clue who they were. I'd, I'd only met them just then. And part of the stag do is we went to this amazing restaurant uh, that served fantastic Cantonese uh, food. Now, I prepared myself because I knew that there might be some things there that I was not used to eating, and I was absolutely right. But it was all delicious. Um, I ate the swim bladder of a fish. Who knew that was a thing? Uh, I ate some weird seafood that I couldn't even tell you what it was. Um, I also ate some uh, this like really fatty meat um, that was just, oh, it was just delicious. It melted in your mouth. It was fantastic. And I got lulled into a somewhat of a slight sen uh, slightly false sense of security because there's this little bowl of vegetables on the table. I thought, oh, all the rest of it's been delicious. I better help myself. So I help myself to a rather large portion. And I start chewing and chewing and chewing. It turns out I'd helped myself to a rather large portion of raw pickled jellyfish. Um, if you're wondering, it is both slimy and crunchy at the same time. I don't know how they do it. It's amazing. Um, this provided a lot of amusement as the Westerners amongst us tried to kind of get through this stuff. And those who lived in Hong Kong were brought up in Hong Kong uh, found it very, very amusing. Here's the thing. At the end of the meal, I didn't feel like an outsider anymore. Something changed around that table as we ate together, as we laughed together, as we desperately tried to chew raw pickled jellyfish together. The table is powerful. And so it should flow both ways. If this is the ultimate meal of our freedom that we eat together on a Sunday then we should model that in our homes during the week. And if we're eating with fives and six and sevens during the week, then we should long to eat with 150, 160, 170 together on a Sunday. With that in mind, let's turn to verse 21. 
The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. It would be so easy to reduce the idea of Christian community to nice middle-class dinner parties of like-minded, similar stage, same political persuasion, same area of the city, look the same, smell the same, sound the same, people who all come around for dinner and then feel really good about ourselves that we're modelling Christian community. Verse 21 does not give us that freedom. It gives us a better freedom. Here's the challenge, that Jesus shows hospitality to those who are going to betray him. His hospitality was not based on his own comfort, it was based on the purposes of God. And if the Lord's table was about loving service, then why should we assume that our tables should be based upon anything else? Now, it might not be betrayal in these words, in these terms for us, but our hospitality as the people of God should always be based on the purposes of God. So here's my question, how are you using your home for the purposes of God at the moment? How are you using it to welcome those who are new to faith or new to church community? How are you using it to proclaim the gospel? How are you using your table to, re to rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn? How are you using your table to give to those who are in no position to give back to you? Because that's what gospel hospitality looks like. Jesus' last supper was hospitality based on the purposes of God. Jesus' vision for your table is that sometimes you eat with those whom you have no common ground except the common ground of the gospel. That sometimes, I'm not saying it's got to be every single night, but sometimes you would eat with those who you have no common ground except for the common ground of the gospel. Because the king of heaven has called us into his kingdom together. Now, the world outside the church can speak of equality and diversity and inclusion to no end. But if you really want to know who someone values, look at who they have round for dinner. It's very easy to advocate for diversity, diversity and inclusion around the conference table but it's all just for show if your dinner table remains unchanged. The kind of diversity and inclusion that the world around us values is almost entirely performative. It's bringing new perspectives into your teams, but keeping them away from your homes. It's building a diverse network, but never allowing them near your family. It's about caring about injustice in the data table, so long as it never affects the dining table. If you want true diversity and inclusion gospel diversity and gospel inclusion, you have to look to the king over all nations and over all peoples who welcomes us to eat at his table and then claims our tables for his purposes.
how are we going to put this into action this week? Well, I want to ask this. Who are you going to show hospitality to? Who are you going to get out the diary with? Maybe you're going to be intentional about people who are finding people who are new to church or just exploring faith. Maybe they've just moved to the area. What would it look like if we were the kind of church where you go there on one Sunday and your diary is full for the next month of dinner invites? Is that not the kind of people you want to be? Do you not want to be the kind of church where someone looks at us and says, that is true diversity and true inclusion? That is a church where people spend time together when they don't look alike, don't sound alike, don't think the same things, but somehow they are brought together around a table. Is that not who you want to be? Different generations, different nations, dining and eating together in our homes and together on a Sunday. It's not one or the other. It's a continuum of hospitality and blessing and kingdom. Maybe you are called this week to have someone around for dinner who's not yet in church and you want to invite them in. Maybe the first table they'll go to is not the Lord's table, but your table. Maybe you're called to serve on the hospitality team and make it so that when people come into church, we don't just greet them with a hello, but we greet them with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and cake. And we make sure the place is clean and tidy and and ready for people. And I'll end with this. If we all go out there inviting people around for dinner, we may, just sometimes may do that to mask the fact that we don't want to give up control and receive hospitality from someone else. Who is it that you would need to say yes to to receive hospitality from? Because in the kingdom, it's not always going to be the most affluent who are hosting. In the kingdom, it's not always going to be that particular group who always do the hosting. In the kingdom, we say yes to hospitality because it's offered to us on gospel purposes. And that requires a huge work in our hearts. Our hearts being transformed so that we no longer see the Christian community within worldly structures. But instead, we understand that we are a community built upon Jesus Christ. We're invited to his table to sit under the authority of his word and to invite others in. So I'd love you to bow your heads with me. And we're going to pray a really simple prayer. Lord, who are you bringing to my mind this week? Let's remain in that moment.